This is the East Traumacast. Welcome to another episode of Traumacast. I'm Lauren Judas, an acute care surgeon at West Virginia University in Morgantown, West Virginia. Today, we're going to talk about a topic that may not be relevant in your acute care surgery practice, but for those of us that do practice on this disease, we know that can certainly be troubling. So we have some special guests today. And I'd like to introduce Tatiana Cardenas, one of our members of the online education committee and a new guest moderator. But before we get started, I'd like to say thank you to Hemanetics for their generous and unrestricted educational grant for the online education committee and TraumaCast. Tatiana. Thanks so much, Lauren. Um, yeah, my name is Tatiana Cardenas, and I'm a trauma acute care surgeon at Dell Medical School, University of Texas in Austin. Today, we're going to discuss pilonidal disease. I think it's something that we see with pretty frequent regularity uh, in our EDs and management can be a little more nuanced than just, hey, let's drain this pus. And a bunch of times as acute care surgeons, we drain them and in the acute setting and then send them to our colorectal colleagues for definitive excision down the line. So I think this is a perfect opportunity to get into it. Without further ado, let's introduce our two guests. I'm Joe Guyavaturi. I'm a the Chief of Colorectal Surgery at Dell Medical School, the University of Texas at Austin. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Hi, I'm Pat McGonigal. I'm an acute care surgeon at the University of Iowa in Iowa City, Iowa. This is something that I've, I've kind of uh, developed as a clinical interest as well as an acute care surgeon. So thank you very much for the invitation. All right, let's get started with some basics. So what's pilonidal disease? So I'm a, I'm a history guy, so I always have to go into the background of these things and First of all, pilonidal, it's, uh, it's Latin, pilo, hair, nidus, nest, a nest of hair. So essentially, it's a skin condition that occurs typically in the natal cleft, uh, the gluteal cleft. Oftentimes, it can be presenting as an infection, but essentially, it's one of these tip of the iceberg kind of problems. You'll see a, a couple of pits on the surface many times, but then there'll be a larger inflammatory pocket below that can get infected intermittently. Uh, oftentimes has has hair. And uh, in terms of the people that get this, this is a problem that frequently uh, affects teenagers, uh, 20-year-olds. It has a higher predilection for males. So it's a population that usually is fairly healthy at baseline, but this can be a very stigmatizing and problematic disease for these uh, young adults. And I think it's a, it's a great population to treat because they're very grateful for what you can do for them. And in World War II, it was known as the Jeep disease because of so many soldiers having this uh, riding in Jeeps. And additionally, you know, this disease comes from, just like Dr. McGonagall said, in the natal cleft, can also come in between the fingers and barbers. It's just where moisture, hairs, trauma, all of this come together that cause this issue. So we, you can see it in other places other than in the natal cleft, but that is predominantly the area in which we see it. Thanks so much for that. Let's talk about the acute stage of the disease process. So what sort of operative planning details should we focus on acutely in terms of, you know, we get this patient in the ED, we know they have a pilonidal abscess. Talk to us a little bit about considerations that we have um, in the acute phase in preparing at least for a potential elective operation later, the goal is obviously to, to adequately drain the acute infected material and plan your incision in such a location in which if you're planning on either a layopen technique or a flap, 
that that will be included in where you're going to do your incision. So that's what I would comment from a referring physician side. When I see these acutely in the emergency room, you know, and, and uh, on a night of general surgery call, like uh, like Joga had mentioned, you know, we, we need to get adequate drainage and get ahead of the infection. So typically, the, these things often provide you a, a bit of a roadmap in terms of where you can drain because there oftentimes will be a pit kind of centered on the the, the middle of this of this cyst cavity, and you can potentially open that up uh, to allow for for good drainage. But I I, I would agree, you know try to make sure your incision is over the area of, of most disease, um, because if you do a flap type procedure, that's going to be some of the skin that's going to be removed. So I think that's the, that's a good appropriate approach. Let's say we have a patient that we're evaluating in the emergency department for what we think is pilonidal disease. What do you think would be necessary information you want to get to confirm this? Um, and then is this something that you're going to try to treat overnight immediately? Or is this something that you put off a little bit? Kind of what's your strategy? So I think the big question initially is, are they infected or not? You know, that's, if, if they're infected, I think it's kind of pretty straightforward management. You, if there's pus there, you drain it. If it's just a phlegmon, uh, you treat them with antibiotics and can potentially have them follow up in, in, in your clinic afterwards. If it's more of a chronic disease process that you're seeing in the emergency room without any signs of active infection, uh, there's not necessarily a whole lot that would require immediate intervention. But in terms of the history sort of things, you, these, are, these are oftentimes a chronic process. So they've, they've happened multiple times before. Sometimes they, you, they come to you on their first, uh, first flare-up. But uh, you want to know, you know, have they, have they had this before? Uh, has they, have they had previous infections? Have they had previous procedures for this? Um, so, so certain types of procedures that have high risk, high risk of failure, um, you, you can see those in their background. So typically when you examine these folks, with some exceptions, they tend to be very hirsute or have, have very hairy bottoms. And that, that seems to be the, the typical population that seems to be at higher risk. That being said, I've uh, evacuated hair from the natal clefts of completely hairless female patients and pulled out, you know, inch, inch to two inch long hairs out of these cysts as well. I would also say that, you know, if you're looking at a post-sacral area, it's typically higher up than the anus. And the other thing you you can you worry about with kind of holes and pits in that location are anal fistula. It's rare to have a anosacral fistula. You know, we've seen it, but it's typically a lot more longstanding process to be able to go through the bone to actually have a fistula. So I don't know that imaging is necessary if you clearly see pits and you clearly see an abscess, but in certain patient groups that are susceptible to anal fistulas, such as those with Crohn's disease, you may consider some, and, and, you know, an atypical fistula in these cases, but yeah, 99 times out of a hundred or even more, it's likely just a garden variety uh, pyelonidal disease. So getting to that part where uh, anal fistula, would you, if, if you've got the disease that's very close to the anus, would you include an endoscopy um, evaluation? And then what do we do at that point in time? We find, let's say we do find an anal fistula, what would you have us do? I mean, in those cases, typically there's a decent distance from the coccyx down to the anal, uh, anal verge. So if you're finding a hole and it turns out to be an anal fistula, then I would manage it 
as if how your institution uh, manages anal fistula that's managed by the acute care surgeons with drainage of abscesses and potentially placement of a draining seton, then that is a reasonable approach. If it's one where the colorectal surgeons are typically involved, then potentially a consultation with the colorectal surgeons for appropriate management of those cases. I, I think most of the time, though, it's easily distinguishable between a, a pilonidal disease and an anal fistula. But if it, if it is an anal fistula, then certainly uh, re- drainage of uh, purulent material, preservation of continence by not doing an excessive fistulotomy, these sort of things. And, you know, co- consultation with colorectal disease or dealing with the acute problem and appropriate referral at that time probably is the right approach, depending on your institution. Patrick, how do you tackle pilonidal disease that's pretty widely fistulized? So you've got pits and tracks all over the place. In the acute setting, you've got an abscess, multiple pits. How, how do you tackle this? It's a really good question. I, I think some of these have have a, in terms of their their these more advanced diseases, they almost have this appearance of like the like the watering can anus that, that happens with severe fistula disease with Crohn's and things like that. So if, if they have severe bilateral disease, in many ways those kind of flap type procedures are not as helpful, which are kind of your gold standard. And I'm sure we'll talk about those a little bit later. So I think priority one is always kind of control the infection. So Abscesses, IND, those uh, get ahead of them. Um, in, in terms of management, you know, subsequently in the clinic with these patients, I've started doing something. Uh, it's kind of a, a bit of a twist on what's called the GIPS procedure, um, which is is basically opening up the pilonidal pits, picking out any hair or debris that's in there, washing them out as best I can, and then I actually instill some phenol into these. And what that can potentially do is sclerose some of these, these uh, underlying tracks within the cyst uh, and help close them. And, you know, as I've done those before, I've actually been able to, to actually close some of these tracks as I'm doing the procedure uh, using, using uh, a liquid phenol um, that, that our pharmacy makes up for special when we do it. And sometimes by doing things like that in the clinic, I'm able to, you know, quote unquote, downgrade the patient's disease to, to something that can be manage more with a surgical approach or, or get them to the point where they're happy with the degree of, of disease they have, where they're no longer having lots of drainage and they're, they're comfortable just kind of staying status quo and, and, and living what they have. And just to add on that, I think the, you know, there, there are a number of treatments for this, both from an uh, office-based ambulatory uh, and ambulatory-based procedures. And what Patrick is talking about, the pit picking and the phenol has been supported by data. In some series, there are, there have been a significant success. And our one of our PAs in my prior institution was doing pit picking and, and injection and had reasonable results for, especially for those patients who have limited disease and wanted to try a, a lesser procedure than a flat procedure being an approach. So I think that those patients that have extensive disease have a uh, cleft with a significant amount of pits, probably a bigger, uh, you know, a more standard flap or other procedure from an operative standpoint is a better approach in those patients. But those patients that have some symptomatology, but limited disease, we're talking about maybe two, three, four pits maximum, I think a smaller approach is, is certainly very reasonable. 
I agree with you 100%, Joga. I think if, in, in, in most cases, disease tends to be dominant on one side of the cleft. Um, and in those cases, you know, I, I think a, a, a flat procedure can be very beneficial. So let's kind of walk through kind of an escalation of clinical scenarios. So let's say a younger patient, first time they're having this, they came acutely with an abscess. They got drained by the acute care surgeon. And now uh, they were sent on a couple of days of antibiotics and they're being seen in follow-up, you know, in the surgeon's office. What is the, the next step for that patient? We've, we, we started off, uh, one of my uh, nurse practitioner and I, early on, we did, we did a lot of, uh, a lot more of the excisional sort of things, not as much of the flat-based procedures. And I think the literature is really, there, there is, is a much higher recurrence rate with midline type procedures with uh, pilonidal disease. So we created a bit of an algorithmic approach, or at least kind of a, a, some options to offer to patients. So we'll examine them. We'll take a good look at, at, at the amount of disease. We'll kind of quantify how many pits they have, um, whether they have a, a large open granulated wound from their previous, from a previous excision or from their IND. Uh, and we put those things together to, to offer the patient options going forward. So th- those options kind of depend on what the patient's goals are. So if, if it's a person who could potentially be off of work for, uh, for a period of time recovering from a larger surgical procedure, um, or they're in a type of work where they could potentially work at a standing desk or something like that, where, where, where they wouldn't be as uncomfortable after a flat procedure, then we, and, and, they're, and they're motivated to get that, then we can offer them that. If they have limited disease and want to uh, get the pit picking and phenol, we offer them that as well. So as, as Joga had mentioned, you know, the more extensive patients, we, we oftentimes would, would offer those people a flat type procedure. If it looks like they have extensive disease on both sides of their cleft will potentially offer uh, office-based procedures to improve their, their disease uh, burden before offering them a, a, a flap-type procedure. Um, if they have a broad-based granulated wound, I have found that, that doing sclerosing-type procedures don't typically heal those people well. So those are folks that we oftentimes would offer a flap-based procedure to as well. I would also include that, you know, we use patient-reported outcomes and health-related quality of life measures to see how much these actually affect people, uh, in addition to patient preference. Like, uh, palonidal disease, in the, for the most part, is not going to be one of those diseases that's going to lead to mortality or, or a necrotizing soft tissue infection, typically. Uh, however, you know, it, is, it can be life-altering and, and, and kind of uh, an annoyance for folks. So, I sometimes see folks from college uh, who come in that, you know, came in, got drained, and then they want to come back at a later date to have a definitive procedure in something that's a little bit more convenient with holidays and schedule. And I think that all those things are reasonable uh, for some patients that I incidentally notice pilonidal disease. Maybe they don't actually have an abscess, but they just have a pilonidal pit. If it hasn't bothered them, then I don't really do anything with that. I think that this is one where I think patient preference plays a role uh, and and the type of procedure plays a role and and the amount of wound care and things like that that they are willing to uh, endure and do are also things that are involved in that decision making. But in this acute case, like five days out or a week out from a drainage, probably leave them alone let the acute kind of indurated tissue continue to soften and improve to normal, and then really take a look at maybe, uh, you know, at a month, two months afterwards to see what it looks like as long as there's adequate drainage of everything. 
So once you're seeing them back in, you know, a month or two and the inflammation's all resolved, is there anything you counsel them about to try to prevent it? There's data about hair removal. There's data about laser hair removal, as well as just keeping the area clean. So I think that wound care itself, I think is good. I do counsel the very, very hair stewed people to, to try to keep the area hair free, understanding that those small hairs are also contributing to, to this. Um, you know, I haven't really pr- pursued, I haven't emphasized to folks to do laser hair removal. I think, I think that really can be pretty costly to folks as well as it takes a number of treatments. It's not like a single treatment to get laser hair removal in that area. Um, so, but I, I think keeping the area clean, I think, you know, for some people, because they understand what it is, then they, then they uh, have a better understanding when they're starting to have a problem. You know, I find it kind of similar to those patients that have their, after their first episode of diverticulitis, then they have a sense of what their disease feels, what that disease feels like. Similarly, those that have had a pilonidal abscess have a similar uh, thought of what that is after the first episode. So be conscientious of your symptoms if you, if you're, if the person is not choosing to do anything about it which, you know, again, it depends on the patient and their preference and where they are. One more point on on laser hair removal, Uh, at least in our uh, state, most insurance doesn't cover it. Um, I I can't, I can't say I've found a a patient's uh, insurance here that has covered it. I believe there is a randomized controlled trial out of Ohio State right now going on looking at laser hair removal. So until that's probably published, we're probably talking another two to five years after that before insurance would even consider it if they have a positive finding. So this is a bit of the, this disease process, as you mentioned, uh, Joey, is, is, is like a, one of the stepchildren of, of, uh, of medicine. It's, it, it, it really affects people's lives, but it's not one of those, those sexy things that hits the headlines and gets, and gets a, uh, an acronym on a, on a, uh, a television commercial. Um, so if only it were. I would also say that um, for some folks that have the disease at, at later teens and early 20s, when, as they grow into their late 20s, for some of them, the disease just doesn't either doesn't affect them or somewhat kind of goes away. And, and there may be some other factors, hormonal or otherwise, that are also involved. Um, for some folks that have a single episode and not much hair, uh, and, you know, had an inciting event, long car ride or, you know, sitting for a prolonged period of time for a month or something for like a summer internship, but not doing that on a regular basis. This may be something where it's a self-limited thing and you and you leave it alone instead of put it, putting them through a procedure just to do so. Let's take Lauren's patient that she mentioned. Let's say this is someone who has had this happen a few times acutely abscesses drained in the ED. Now they're coming back to see y'all on an elective basis. A couple months later, things look better and duration looks fine. The patient wants definitive treatment. I know you guys mentioned and you touched upon the, that there are flap options. Can you expand upon that a little bit more and, and talk to us a little more about the definitive treatment and in the elective setting? Yeah, I mean, I think I think to start if you, yeah, we already talked about one option, which is to do nothing, uh, or just uh, keeping the area clean, wound care, and so forth. Uh, if you're talking about another option, it's uh, excision of the 
pits and the sinus down to the down to where you're art you're around all of the sinuses and and the cysts, um, usually down to the postsacral fascia, uh, and then marsupialization where you take the skin and you and you, you kind of suture it down to the tissue so you leave the wound open and then have them pack it on a regular basis. Those patients typically need to have wounds that are checked oh, about once a week and make sure they have the appropriate packing. And uh, for many times it takes four, six, eight weeks for it to fully granulate and heal. So it's a very long wound care process. Uh, another option is, to, is, a, is the, you know, the excision again with primary closure, you know, suturing it in layers. Uh, and we worry about recurrence rate uh, for there because you have a midline, again, midline wound or midline incision, and you have the same issue, which is where, you know, the, the, the cleft comes together and the, and the, the gluteus kind of comes together. You create like a relative vacuum uh, and a relative area of moisture and, and friction and, and trauma that could potentially cause a recurrence of, of these, of these issues. Um, and then uh, further flat procedures um, that we can consider on an elective basis have thought to try to move that incision away from the midline. And so there are flat procedures. Uh, simplest one is, is called a keratacus flap, where you do an oval excision and then you mobilize the tissue on one side and bring it over to the other side with the incision being. Uh, off of the midline. There are also cleft lift procedures. Uh, John Bascom and his son actually created uh, this procedure where you're, you know, it takes a lot of preoperative work. And I, I would encourage you to look that up in the textbook because there's some excellent diagrams for that procedure. In brief, you have to mark the patient preoperatively where their cheeks come together and then also mark uh, near the near the anal area and essentially make an ovoid type incision that's very very um, off midline but includes the pits and the and the and the um, cysts and you're and you're and you're doing a layered closure. There's also other flaps like a rhomboid flap or a Z plasty. I find I found that you know when I started practice for some folks I was doing. It just an excision and marsupialization. So the simpler procedure where you are taking out all that tissue. Uh, and I found that people were having a hard time with one wound care, two coming back every week to get the wound check and three, uh, it's really hard for folks to kind of pack it, especially if they're by themselves. Uh, you know, it's painful, it's annoying. Uh, how do you get the how do you get the packing to stay even if it's gauze or it's iodoform or it's just uh, or it's just a quarter inch packing? How do you get it to stay? How do you get a how do you get a uh, a, um, a uh, kind of a dressing or anything on there? So I've mo I've moved away from that. I personally use a use a rotational flap called a Z plasty, where I'm excising the tissue. Uh, and then making uh, 60 degree incisions and then excising, uh, moving the tissue so that the incision that goes along the midline is actually horizontal rather than vertical. Um, and so that's my preferred approach. I usually leave a drains so that there's not accumulation of fluid because you want that flap to sit down onto the sacrum. And usually I remove that drain in two days. So, but I tell the patient, if this falls apart, 
it's going to be a very large wound because you're excising much more than what you normally do. But uh, the options, you know, I've had good outcomes about that overall, been happy with, with that approach. That's, that's great, uh, Doug. I, I, I agree with, with everything you said in terms of those, those approaches. I think the, 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 tough, the tough part of midline incisions, in addition to the wound care, is it's just a perfect environment for anaerobic bacterial growth. You know, when, you, when you're sitting down, your, your cheeks are together, and you're, you kind of close things down in a perfect moist environment, you may as well have a 37-degree incubator full of, full of agar plates down there. So, um, so I, I think that the, the main principle behind these flap-type procedures is, is avoiding having the, having the healing part of your incision in that area. Um, I personally do the, the Bascom cleft lift procedure. Um, it's just what I did in training. And I, I've had, had very good results with that. The, I, I also leave a drain. Um, I, I, it's not a closed suction drain that I use. I actually will, will use a vessel loop under my skin flap. One end of the vessel loop actually comes through the part of the incision, actually. And one thing that I found that isn't necessarily always written in, in papers and things like that is, is it's important to do post-operative wound care, especially when you don't have a closed suction drain. So I, I have them bring a family member with them, and I teach them how to roll any fluid that accumulates in the drain with a Curlix. Uh, and I found since I've done that, I've had many fewer patients accumulating seromas and having chronic seroma issues afterwards. Uh, that seems to have helped my, my wound healing rates with that. I will say there, there are some populations you need to be somewhat cautious with, uh, with, flat, with these larger procedures because of that risk that, that, that Joga had mentioned about having a, if they opened up having a large wound. And that, those populations are first and foremost, patients who have really poor hygiene to begin with. There's really no sense that their hygiene is necessarily going to improve. And I've had some of those get infected. Patients with with congenital healing issues like Ehlers-Danlos, um, I, I had, I, I've had uh, one patient with that broke down uh, despite our best efforts. And sometimes, you know, if you do this in a morbidly obese patient, it can increase risk of, of wound breakdown. So I think an interesting thing about Bascom procedure, the Bascom cleft lip is, according to the actual procedure, you don't fully excise the cyst itself. Uh, you, you remove any granulation tissue that's in there, you wash things up, and then you release the scar underlying uh, underlies the cyst portion of the uh, of the pilonidal, and that actually acts as a bit of a bolster to your suture closure because part of that procedure is actually lifting the cleft with sutures, meaning sewing the the uh, the gluteal fat together to create uh, a more shallow cleft that has less of that anaerobic environment. Patrick, you mentioned um, maybe more complications in the morbidly obese. I don't have a pilonidal practice, but I do know in my hernia practice that there's a lot of preoperative optimization we try to perform to decrease, you know, perioperative risks like surgical site infections. Is there any literature to support optimizing these patients preoperatively? Honestly, I don't have a good sense that there is much, much in the literature. The, the pilonidal literature in general is pretty sparse um, in terms of, of risk reduction. I think a lot of the papers on pilonidal disease are, are lucky to have 100 patients in them. So, uh, so I, I don't know that there's anything that's powered to answer that question thus far. Um, that being said, I, I, I haven't made it a practice yet to have people quit necessarily quit smoking or, or lose weight beforehand. But I, I think as part of a general um, perioperative, uh, perioperative discussion with patients, I think it's an important thing to include. Weight loss may be feasible, you know, but in these patients you're dealing with uh, that have a problem that they want to deal with, dealt with in the short term, it may not be as, as feasible when they're having lots of symptoms from their pilonidal disease. 
That being said, things like smoking cessation could certainly be um, be maybe a more effective thing for them to uh, to worry about in the in the perioperative phase to improve wound healing. I would just say that smoking cessation uh, is is definitely something that I that I encourage for folks. Uh, and since this is a sort of elective operation in the elective setting, that I em emphasize that they need to be stopping to stop smoking if I'm going to consider this operation. It allows them to have an opportunity to not smoke. Uh, you know, if they see a big wound problem or anything like that. So with regards to your definitive management, are there any new evolving ideas or techniques that are out there um, that aren't just these flat based definitive treatment options? I mean, I would defer to Patrick, but it's things like the pit picking and injection of phenol. There's also some folks that use a hysteroscope, a small hysteroscope to go in and wash out the sinuses uh, and cysts and then use kind of cautery or bipolar through the hysteroscope to, to cauterize the cysts without excising them. So there are other approaches, but like Patrick said, most of the data are small trials, retrospective evaluations. There are some randomized trials, but not as uh, common as other disease processes. But it's kind of funny to consider pit picking and phenol a new therapy because in many ways it's, it's what was old is new again. Because um, I think some of the the, the papers that describe phenol are from like the 60s and 70s. Um, so, and mainly from Europe. Studies out of, um, out of England, Greece, and Turkey, I believe, were some of the foundational studies, and they've done some since um, in that area. So it's, it's not something that's done as frequently in the U.S., but it's, I think there's, there's centers, it sounds like, such as both of ours that are, that are, uh, are doing this to some extent. So it's, it's kind of something we had to make up and work through our own pharmacy. Um, but I think once you do it, it certainly can be a cost-effective way to deal with, with pilonidal disease in the clinic. We had to work through a lot of hiccups in terms of the billing of this, but uh, 100 cc's of phenol uh, from our pharmacy costs like $12. So, so the actual drug is, is cheap to use. The, the procedure is pretty basic and can be done in, in most uh, clinic or uh, day surgery centers with, with the equipment that you have. I mean, essentially, you need a hemostat, you need some suction tubing and a, and a, uh, a sucker, you need a knife, maybe some punch biopsies and, and a bunch of saline and water in addition to your phenol. Um, we, we ended up using 80% phenol here for our, uh, our procedures. Some of the literature uses crystalline phenol, which is basically you just take it straight out of the container in a crystal form and put it, put it into the cyst and it'll melt and, and act on those, those areas. A lot of the literature uses 90% phenol. I, we just had to make do with what we, what we could get from our pharmacy. Um, but uh, I think we've, we've been able to create, a, create a, a system where we're able to get this done and, and oftentimes to get insurance to pay for it too. Kind of on the flip side of that question, is there anything that used to be acceptable that is a big no-no now? Um, I think Joga had mentioned before, uh, midline excision with closure uh, is consistently in the literature been shown to have a very high recurrence rate. So I, I think some people will still do midline excision, but I think closing these wounds, um, we're talking uh, recurrence rates exceeding 40 to 50%, depending on the studies you look at. So, so I, I think that Closing a wound in the midline would be would, would be a uh, a no no in this in this circumstance because I think you're you're setting yourself up for for recurrence and for trouble. 
And I think the other thing is for those patients that have recurrent infections that may, may not choose to want to have surgery, those are the patients that you should really talk to about having it if they're having recurrent disease because they are, you know, having you know, acute infections of their pyelonidal disease and likely have not been clean, you know, having enough in terms of wound care, cleanliness, things like that. So uh, they may benefit from the operation. I would also say that those patients, you know, in addition to phenol, people have tried things like hydrogen peroxide and fibrin glue. So there have been other injective approaches. So, but I think the most cost-effective approach is probably the best, best approach if you want to consider doing that procedure. And then is there either a special patient population or specific cases that we should really be considering referral to either a high volume center or a colorectal trained uh, surgeon right off the bat instead of trying to allow our acute care surgeons to manage it? I, I mean, I think what I would say to that is it depends on the experience of the person. Um, this is not it's kind of hard to hard to know what exactly a high volume pilonidal surgeon is, but I think somebody who is experienced in taking care of these wounds or demonstrates an interest in doing so with with good outcomes. I think that those people, at least within a even within your acute care practice, if there is a person that has that skill set, probably they they that person should be the one to be doing those procedures on an elective basis, whether that be the acute care surgeon within your practice, or if it's a colorectal surgeon within your practice, uh, it's somebody who's, who's, who's very experienced. It's good to have three or four different approaches in your toolbox. I say I do Z-plasty, but for some places, you know, we have to do a cleft lift or a keratacus flap or just excision and marsupialization. Uh, There hasn't been a procedure that has been the gold standard winner. So I think having somebody within your practice um, that has a lot of experience or a lot of skill set to be able to do that and to learn from those people uh, when you're training as a, as a resident, when you're training as a medical student, seeing different ways how people deal with this disease process, I think is important so that um, you can be that person even as a general surgeon, acute care surgeon, a trauma surgeon, a colorectal surgeon, breast surgeon, whatever your practice is, I think I think having a, a several, you know, a few, three, four different approaches is a good thing. And then having some quote unquote specialization within your own local practice uh, is helpful as well. But I think those patients that uh, tend to be referred to me are those patients that have uh, significant complicated disease with multiple pits that have had recurrent disease and those patients that are typically young men and women that are consi- are care about a, some sort of cosmetic approach are the ones that typically are referred to me. Those are the ones I typically see. I, I think institutional base is, is important in terms of your referral patterns. Since we're a level one burn center here, we our burn service tends to be uh, tends to be our wound wound service as well. There is a bit of a uh, a bit of a beeline for any chronic wound issues to come into our acute care surgery department, and that, that's what kind of set up our, our situation here. Right, this is th- these are procedures I did in residency. I, I learned 
the cleft lift and residency, I, I had to kind of teach myself how to do pit picking and phenol. It's something um, I actually had a patient uh, that had been coming in to see me. I saw on a regular clinic day uh, who basically said, you know, I've had multiple surgeries. Is there anything else um, that, that you can do for me? And I was actually, he was, he was texting me when I was sitting at an East meeting. Uh, gosh, where was it? I think, I, I think it was the last time we were in Austin. I was sitting there at, in, between, in between speakers at an East meeting, and I stumbled upon this American Society of Colorectal Surgeons guideline statement from, uh, I think, oh gosh, maybe about uh, four or five years ago that had mentioned phenol, and that prompted me to look into that some more. So, so I, th I think it's a, it's a skill you can learn, but it, I 100% agree uh, with, with Yoga that in the end, you, this is, if, if this is going to be part of your practice, you need to uh, follow your outcomes closely and, and adjust your practice based on your outcomes. You need to own these patients too and own any complications that you have, um, just with any other, anything else in general surgery. But we follow our patients uh, indefinitely at this point. You know, we've kind of created a, a bit of a referral pattern from, from our region uh, for this problem. And we'll follow people, uh, you know, two to three years out um, on, a, on a fairly regular basis to watch for signs of recurrence. Um, and, and we've, we're gathering a data based on these patients with the hopes of publishing this since there's, uh, most of the literature is retrospective, but, but underpowered. So our hope is over time that we'll have more data uh, going forward. So, so, but it's, it's a problem that kind of fell in my lap and I've, I, I, I give people a hard time about me doing this, but in the end, it's a very grateful patient population. It's very rewarding. Um, it can also be very humbling when you get complications, but in the end, it's, it's, uh, I, I think you're able to do some good for these young people. And in closing, um, with all your experience, I want you guys, if you can think of one kind of clinical pearl you could pass on that you may not have realized when you first started working with pilonidal disease, but wish you had known at that time. I think the first part is you need to listen to your patients. If your practice, when I started when a, long, <laughs> a while back now, when I started practice, I was doing it one way. It was inconvenient for people. And I was not satisfied with the results because it took people a long time for them to heal. And it's a, it's a burden on somebody to be brought to the office once a week to pack and all, all those things. So look at the data, see what other approaches exist. Uh, I had learned other approaches, but this is the one people were tending to choose. And then learn a different approach. I hadn't learned the Z-plasty and, and residency, but uh, you know, as colorectal surgeons, we've learned VY anoplasty, things like that. So it's a similar sort of approach. So talking to your plastic surgery colleagues, learning from them, understanding how they do the approach. So that's one thing. Don't necessarily be stuck in the way you were trained to do it because there may be new approaches that come, come by. And then the other thing is patient preference, I think, makes the biggest difference. And the, you really have to get to how this is affecting their lives and what their goals are for treatment of this disease. If things are going great and their goal is just to, you know, not have, you know, not, not don't really care too much about it, then probably don't do anything about it. But if, you're, if their goals are to not deal with this abscess, then probably that's a better person to talk to about a about a definitive approach. So I think if you're in training, be it, and this is true for any disease process, just be aware, just be aware of there are, you know, patient preference does play a role. Tools like patient report outcomes can help. 
people can be satisfied with many different outcomes, different approaches. So uh, I think those are the things that uh, the advice I would give to folks. On my end, uh, I think this is a good example of how uh, when you go into medicine, there's there's a constant opportunity for reinvention. You know, I, I did not go into trauma fellowship or do acute care surgery expecting to do this, but it's kind of uh, fell, fell in my lap as, as a patient population and pe- people kept coming to see me for it. And it, it really, it really became something I, I developed a passion for. And now when my kids ask what I do, they're more likely to say that uh, daddy, daddy rearranges people's butt cracks than that daddy, daddy takes out spleens sometimes. So, but, but I, I think this, this was, as I mentioned before, I think that I've, I was surprised that this could be a, a fairly rewarding practice and, uh, and a, a fairly fun population to work with in the end um, with, a, with a bad problem. Well, thank you so much, guys. I'm sure all of our listeners and myself as well have learned a ton from this. If you aren't aware of some of the other offerings from the East Education Committee, check out our website where you can find things like the East Minutes or CareerCast to uh, supplement your reading material. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast brought to you by the East Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, network and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the East.